I have tonight, uh, I'm going to be uh, up here teaching in two weeks. Tonight we're going to be talking from Jerusalem to England. And in two weeks we're going to be talking about from England to Harrisonville. And so I don't know if you've ever thought about how did our church get here? How did the Bible get here? What is our church roots? What is the roots of this church? And, and just how did all this take place? Because, you know, when you study the Bible and you see the Word of God scattering around the world, we really don't know a lot about, or maybe you've never thought about, how did the Word of God get to America? How did it get to, to Missouri? How did it get to Harrisonville? How did it get to this church? And who was it in my life that brought me to the realization that I needed Christ as my Savior? I don't know. Can anybody in here remember who brought, who led you to the Lord? Can you guys do that? Okay. Have you ever went back and thanked these people? Now, maybe you've been able to. I, re, I was saved when I was 10 years old, and I've went back to church picnics of the old church that I went to, and I've always tried to meet the lady that, that uh, uh, led me to the Lord, and, and she moved to California. And I would just love to be able to you know, grab her again and say, hey, thank you for investing in a 10-year-old boy sharing the gospel with me and leading me to Christ because that's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. So what is our Baptist heritage? Have you guys thought about that? I, I know I think about things like this. And I've always been uh, interested in, in people and what denomination they they uh, belong to and why they belong that to that denomination. And I'll just tell a little bit about myself. A few years ago, I was at a picnic with the old church that had grown up with years ago, they had a, they don't have a church, but they still have a picnic. That's that kind of tells you how food is with with us Baptists. And so it was a Southern Baptist church, and and there was a man there, and I'm talking to him, and he told me he went to an open door Bible church. And I said, interesting. I said, now what do you guys at open door Bible church believe? And he started going off on me. And he goes, you Baptist, you, go, you think you're the only one that's getting to heaven. You, you know, you, you down look at everybody else. And I'm like, I'm kind of wanting to just crawl under a chair. And he goes, you just, just name me one person that's a Baptist that you know that's going to be in heaven. And I go, well, what about John? And, he's, and he turned around and walked off. <laughs> so... Uh, my wife told me, she goes, I can't take you anywhere. You just get argument. I said, I just asked him what he believed. So what do you believe? And if you go to a church and you don't know what you believe, you've got problems. And so we've got to know why we believe what we believe. And so it's so important that we have a Baptist heritage. And we, we owe so much to the people before us that have gotten the gospel out and gotten his word out. And so you have a handout there. We're just going to go through some some uh, minor things that we probably all know. I'm teaching to the choir tonight. I know that. And so uh, we're going to start at the very beginning, and we're going to try to get from, from where we are uh, in Jerusalem to England. And then from there, like I said, in a couple of weeks, we'll go back. So we, were we able to get that video going, guys? Okay, great. So I, I won't need it till the end, and if not, we'll do it next week. So the church definite, what is a definition of a church? Can anybody in here tell me, what is the definition of a church? All right. 
So on our handout there, it's, it is from the Greek word ekklesia. And this word is a compound word. It means ek, which means to call out. And for all you ladies in here, which we have a lot of ladies in here tonight, I find that word, I hear that word a lot, ek. Do you guys say that word? My wife says that word. I've heard other ladies say that word. When they don't like something, they go, ek. And I'm like, oh, that's the first part of church. So it means to call out, to call out. And then kaleo, which means to call together. So it's like, well, that's kind of like a, you know, an oxymoron, right? So a church is a called out group of people called to meet together. Okay, and so if you're taking notes where it says people, just write believers. Because a true church is a church of believers that is called out of the world, called to meet together. That's why it is so important that we meet as a church body on a weekly basis. And I don't know, you know, when COVID was going on, you know, a year or so ago, and we're doing it by video, that just wasn't church. You know, you've got to have that fellowship. You've got to have that that friendship that we have. And if you're not in an ABF class today in this church, find an ABF class to go to. You have to wake up a little bit earlier on Sunday morning. But you know what? When you have problems in your life, when you need somebody to pray with you, when you just need to have some good Christian friends, that's a really good place to start with. It's the people that that's in ministry with you that's going to help you through the rough times in your life. And so I'll just put that plug in. So there is something about meeting together. Okay. God set it up where the Jewish people in the Old Testament were to focus specifically on the feast. And even today, you know, 2,000 years after Christ, you know, 4,000 years after the beginning of the law, What's holding a lot of Jewish people together that don't even believe the Old Testament, that have no idea about what they're going, what, what the Old Testament is about, but one thing they meet at is on the feast. They'll, they'll follow the feast. They don't understand what they mean, but at least they will celebrate them. You know, kind of like we do Memorial Day, right? Here in the States, Memorial Day was to, to celebrate, you know, the people that had fallen in battle. And yet, you know, most people go to the lake, which that's okay, but you've got to remember why it was there for. And so there's something about meeting together. That's, that's why Baptists meet together around food. There's something biblical about that, okay? So a church is a called out group of people, which is called to meet together, okay? So I'm going to look number one, point number one is Christ promises to the church. Now, I was thinking just a few months ago, when, you know, when, when I pass away, I want the song Standing on the Promises of God on in my funeral because that's what I'm standing on. Outside of God's promises, I really don't have a lot to stand on. And so I want to look at what are Christ's promises to the church. So turn over in your Bible to Matthew sixteen eighteen. Matthew sixteen eighteen. And we're going to look at three things that Christ promises to the church. And again, this is nothing new. You guys have heard all this. Matthew sixteen eighteen says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock 
I, Jesus, will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, what is the church going to do? It's going to prevail. So I don't know if you have a blank in your handout. Do you? Okay, so in that blank goes prevail. Christ promised that his church would prevail. And then under B, it says that his words would not. What do you think, guys? I like to ask questions. What did Christ promise that his words, thank you, would do? Not pass away. Christ's words would not pass away. So you're already in the book of Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. Matthew 24:35 Jesus says heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall what not pass away so the second thing on your blank is there that his words would not pass away and then under C it says that he would always let me just give you what it goes in your blank he would always be with them now the bible says in the hebrews that god will never Leave us nor forsake us. And that's basically goes right along with this. Matthew 28 and verse 20. So let's look at that right quick. Matthew 28, 20. And again, the end of the Great Commission here. It says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So Jesus promised that he would be with us, that he would be with the church always. Now, I know, and we all know, you know, we, we saw this in, in D2, D1, that, um, that when we get the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will stay with us, how long, class? Forever. That is, you know, it says in there several times till the day of Christ, but it also says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit will reside in us forever. So that's a promise. So, so his church would, would always prevail, that his words would not pass away, and that he would always be with us. Now, why do I make a big deal out of this? Because some people will tell you that you cannot know which church is the real biblical church okay they will also tell you that you can't know which is the real bible you can't find that out so let me ask a question when in history did christ's church disappear when you have somebody ask you that question ask them when in history did christ's church disappear when in history did christ's words disappear and if they have, then Christ lied to us. But yet, we know that he did not. You know, that if we just study the matter out, if people would study the matter out and ask God to give them the truth, God will give it to them. So, that, that's kind of a cop-out when they tell us, you just can't know. Okay. So, we've already got Christ's promises to the church. We're going to look at point number two, how were the New Testament churches started? So number A, or letter A, it says, number one, at Jerusalem. 
the night of the crucifixion with the apostles, the disciples, and Christ's family. So turn over in your Bible to John 20 and verse 19. John 20 and verse 19. And the Bible says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut with the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus, and he stood in the midst, and he said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, and then they were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them, Again, peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So let me stop right there. So when was the very first church meeting? It was on the night, it was on the day or the evening that Christ rose from the grave. And the reason that was the first church meeting was because to have a New Testament church, you have to have the death of the testator. So I will agree that Christ was forming the church when he was, when he was training the apostles and training his disciples. But the first New Testament church doesn't take place until the day of the crucifixion when Christ came to the disciples and the apostles and his family and appeared unto them while they were having that meeting. Okay? And so, uh, and then that was the first New Testament church. That was when it was. And then it began to grow. And then the church grew. Uh, letter B says that other cities, it starts at Jerusalem, and then it starts going out from Jerusalem to other cities, from people who had been to Jerusalem, who had heard about the resurrection, they had believed that Jesus had died and was buried and rose again, and they went back home, and they began to meet. And what began to happen? Churches began to be formed, because where uh, two or more believers start meeting, you're going to be, have a church. They're going to have it. Now, they didn't have all the doctrinal information that Paul would give them later on, but they understood that Jesus had died, he was buried, and he rose again, and that he was the Messiah. They understood that. So the churches began to be forming in other uh, cities, and an example of that would be the church at Damascus. So when Paul was, you know, he was uh, threatening out, you know, threatenings against the church, he goes to Damascus, why did he pick Damascus? Because there was church there. And he went there to find Ananias and the very man that Ananias, uh, that he was going to get. Ananias, and then Ananias got a message from the Lord to go see him. Can you imagine how scared Ananias was? The Lord appears to Ananias and says, I want you to go talk to, to Saul. And he goes, hey, uh, number one, he's like, you talking to me, Lord? Have you ever been in that situation when God tells you something that's like, um, you sure, Lord? You sure you got the right guy? And so that that church in, in Damascus was from people that had went back home from Acts chapter 2, went back home and began to meet, and churches were started. So, And then number, uh, letter C, it says, in places where believers settled from fleeing persecution. So we know that when Saul and other people like him began to persecute the church, persecute believers, people started to flee. And they started to go to other cities. And in the book of Acts, we see cities such as 
as Venus, Cyprus, Syria, Joppa, Lydda, Siren, Caesarea, and all the way to Antioch. Gentiles were now getting saved, and churches were being formed as they went. And then under a D, our next point here, it says churches like the church of Antioch then began to send out missionaries who now they started sending out uh, missionaries and then they began starting new churches in the cities they went to. Kind of reminds us of, of, of HBF today. We've, we're sending out men to start churches. We have the church in Clinton right now that we have sent out. So, um, so again, how were the New Testament churches started? How did they spread? So I'm giving you a little info on that. And then not only that, uh, letter E says, from the apostles who went to other cities and countries to preach the word, see salvations, and start churches. An example of that would be Thomas to India and would be Peter to Babylon. So the, the word of God began to spread. And, and when it spread and people met together, New Testament churches were started and the Word of God was growing and people were getting saved and it began to go around the world. So we're at Roman uh, number three, Roman numeral number three here. So what were the traits of these New Testament churches? Well, I'm going to go through a list here that I have. And so basically, you can find this list in a book that you can get in our resource center, a little pamphlet called The Trail of Blood by J.M. Carroll. And it's a little book, and I highly recommend you get it and you read through that, and it'll give you a fantastic history of Bible believers, Baptist history, down all the way back to the Church of Antioch, to the Church of Jerusalem. Okay, And so basically, in every... Era in every time span from from the first church till now, these are the traits that you'll see these churches have. And if today you're going to a church and you go, wait a minute, do I go to a New Testament Bible believing church? You need to look at this list and see if your church matches with it, because this has been this pretty well the standard of what you've seen down through history. Number one. A, a biblical New Testament church, well, you will find that Christ is its head. The head of the church is Christ. And so turn in over in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Colossians 1.18. And again, nothing new, just things we've already heard. And so instead of starting at 18, I want to back up. This back up to verse 13, just because I like this passage. Okay, So verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things he might have 
the preeminence. Okay, so Christ is the head of the church, and my goodness, you know the the end of the of the Great Commission, or right before the Great Commission, the the verse before Jesus said, "All power has been given to me in heaven and earth." And yet, when you look at this list, my goodness, Christ being a part of God is the creator. He is the image of the invisible God. And he's created all things by him and for him. My goodness. And he is the head of the church. So, you can't argue with that, can you? B, it says that the Bible is the only rule of practice. That's why when you come to church here, You'll, you'll see Pastor Brian or any other pastors, when, when they want to go to something that's authoritative, they don't pull out some book they read somewhere. They don't go over to the library unless there's a Bible. Where they're going to open your Bible up. That's why I love Wednesday night Bible study when they're doing questions and answers. Where do they go to? It's always the Bible because the Bible is our guidebook. Okay, It is our only rule of practice. That's not so. And some of these other churches around the country. Okay. See, it says its name, church. Okay, well, that's pretty given, right? What is the name of Christ's organization on earth? It is the church. Its members, only saved people. That's why when you come to this church, we have a, you know, a next steps class. You, you, you fill out a questionnaire. The pastors are going to want to know who you are, where you live. They want to know, you know, where you're coming from. They want to know, number one, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if they don't ask that question, number one, they're not doing their job. But number two, they want to make sure anybody that comes into the church has to agree with what this church believes or they're coming in falsely. So we want to try to weed out people that come in that believe different than us. Now, we'll let you come in and sit and partake of what we're doing, but we're not going to let you teach. We're not going to let you teach in the E-wing. We're not going to let you teach discipleship. You're going to have to believe what the Word of God says. And so that's kind of how the church protects itself. So it's members only saved people. Now, again, I have been in churches where if you're an influential in the neighborhood or in the, in the area or, you know, you, you have a very important job or maybe you're driving a really nice car, well, they'll want to bring you right up and put you on the front seat and invite you in and make you a member. I'm picking on people. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying, what's the real thing we need to check about? Are people saved when they come in? Do they believe what the Word of God says? And so... The members are only saved people. You wouldn't like to have a bunch of unsaved people in your church, would you? No, you wouldn't. All right. Uh, it's ordinances. Baptism by immersion. Do you have a blank for that? Yes. Baptism by immersion. And only for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Okay. That's why when you come into this church and maybe you were baptized by sprinkling as a baby, it's not going to cut it because it's not biblical. And that's why we will insist on you being baptized by immersion. And it's not because we want you to join our club. It's because that's what the Word of God says. Okay. 
And then the second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. That's the two ordinances that we have here. And that's the ones that you actually will see down through history at Bible-believing churches. Uh, F says it's officers, pastors, and deacons. Well, that's pretty easy. That's why we have pastors and deacons here. It's finances, tithes and offerings. And you might look at me and go, well, wait a minute, Bob. Isn't that how everybody else does it? Not always, because it's going to lead us up to the next point here. It's independence from other churches and government. Now, there are some countries, some even in this country, before the Bill of Rights was put in and forced in the 1790s, there were some states in this country that were that were certain uh, denominations. And so I'm thinking of the, the Northeast, the Congregationalists basically ruled the church in the state of Massachusetts, and you paid your taxes to pay for the church, and they pay your taxes went to pay for the pastor as well as the church itself. And guess what? The Baptists didn't get along with that too well. The Bible believers were kind of ran out of town. And if they didn't pay their taxes, they confiscated their land, their homes, and sold it and gave it to the church. That happened in our country. But that's happened down through history where there, the government would come in and the government would pay for the certain church to, to run and... Um, that's not right because we need to have a say in that. So uh, the true biblical churches have always had independence from the government and other churches. What do you think? I guess I'm pretty rough, but what would you think with another church came in and said, hey, Pastor Brian, you know, I really think you guys are to start, you know, giving us your tithes and we'll just we'll donate some money to make your building bigger and and you can just be, you know, extension of us and we'll bring a couple guys in to teach with you and uh you know, we'll just fund the bill and and and, and what do you think he would say? No way, right? This is a local New Testament church and it's to be funded by its members through tithes and offerings and no no we're not going to take that. Okay. So We've seen some of the traits of this. And again, if you want to see more of that, but every biblical church from the church of Jerusalem all the way down to us, if you look at what they stood for, you'll see these these rules, these traits basically in them. Okay, so so now we've already looked at what Christ promised the church. We've looked at how the first church was started and then how it got spread, and then we're looking at some of the traits of these churches or the traits of these churches. And so we're down to point uh, four here, and I'm, I'm flying through this, so I'm glad I have a video at the end. We'll watch that. But uh, Roman numeral number four says, how did the gospel and the church get to Rome? Did anybody ever wonder that? Am I the only person here that asks weird questions? I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading stuff and I'm like, I stop and I'm like, okay, so how did that happen? You know, I'm like that little, you know, kindergarten kid. Why? Why? Why is, why is the sky blue? Why is there clouds? Why is grass green? I don't, I mean, you ever ask questions when you're reading the Bible? How did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? Because so far we've only seen it get to, you know, basically to Antioch. So let me ask you a question. If I threw a map up here, could you guys find, who could find Jerusalem on the map? 
Raise your hand up. Could you find Jerusalem? Could you find the United States? Okay. Could you find Jerusalem? Okay. Could you find Rome? Okay. So I'm going to ask you guys this. How far is it from Jerusalem to Rome? Anybody know? John's back there trying to figure this out. According to the map, so many, you know, so many three quarters of an inch for every hundred miles and all that. Okay, I'll help you out a little bit. It's twelve hundred and fifty miles from Jerusalem to Rome. And again, they didn't have cars. They didn't have trains. They didn't have airplanes back then. So how in the world did it get from Jerusalem to Rome? And you go, well, it went by ship. Okay. It's still 1,250 miles. Okay. So how did it get there? So hang with me for a little bit. and We're going to look at this. Uh, a on your handout says, we know that there were believers in Rome before Paul visited there. Now, we all know Paul went there, right? He was, he appealed to Caesar and he went to Rome, but yet there was already Christians there. So how in the world did they get the gospel? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question. So we're going to look at that. Turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. And we're going to read down through it for a little bit because, and we're going to be looking through this as I, as we all read it together. I want you to think about what are you seeing here that gives us a clue of how it, the gospel got to Rome. Because Paul was writing this letter to the Romans at Rome before he ever gets there. Okay. So let's see if we can find some clues. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised before, afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and, decla- and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom... Ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Okay, let me stop. Anything about Rome yet? Not yet. Okay. Verse, let me read verse 6 again. Among whom ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now... We know he's writing to a group of people in Rome, and what are they? They're saints. They're they're Christians. Okay? All right, let's keep going. Verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Not only are there Christians in Rome, their word is spreading. So he's telling them, guys, you got to, you, you are meeting in Rome. You have a church in Rome and from you, you are sounding out the word of God around the world. That's a pretty good compliment, actually. And then he says, verse nine, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. 
For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise, to the unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So the gospel has already reached Rome before Paul got there. And so the question keeps going back, how did it get there? Okay. And so we have to kind of go back through our list. And so uh, I would say back to letter B under point two. It says, at other cities from people who had been in Jerusalem, who had heard about the resurrection and believed and went home and began to meet. Example, the church at Damascus. There could have been some people at the feast. They could have seen Jesus crucified. They could have seen him resurrected or at least heard it. They believed the message. They were there for for Passover. They were there for uh, uh, Pentecost. And after that, they would go back home and maybe they went back to Rome and brought the gospel back. So that's certainly a possibility. And then, and then number or letter C there, it says in places where believers settled from fleeing persecution. It could have been some people in Jerusalem that fleed from the persecution in Jerusalem and settled in Rome. But anyway, the gospel has already reached Rome before Paul got there. Okay? And so, again, I'm studying through this and trying to get this out because it is part of the step of how the gospel got to America and got to us. So, just one one spot along the way, okay? And so, uh, so hang with me for a minute. So, we think that... People brought the gospel back before Paul. Well, we know that. Uh, and then B, under point four, it says Cornelius. Now, can everybody remember the, the guy Cornelius in the Bible? Cornelius was a Roman centurion of the Italian band, and he received Christ in Acts chapter 10. So the key words is, he is the centurion uh, the Italian band in the Roman army. Now, where do you think he came from? Italy. Probably from Rome. Did he perhaps, somehow, some way, get the gospel back? I don't know. I'm just looking at the possibilities. Right? Maybe it was somebody in his, in his, in his uh, troop that took the gospel back. Or maybe it was all of the above. We don't know. Okay, so we know the gospel got there. And then see, we know the gospel got there when Paul arrived because he, he arrives in Rome on his appeal to Caesar in Acts 28, 16 to 31 in around 60 A.D. So, in fact, let's go back there and let's read this. Acts chapter 28. or at the very end of Acts, almost at the end of, of Paul's life here, or at least towards the end when he gets to Rome. And I know some people believe he, he got out of the predicament he was in and later caught back. But again, he, he still ends up dying in Rome. But let's read this. Acts 28, starting in verse 16. And it says, And when we came to Rome, here's Paul, 
The centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together, and when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem unto the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had ought to accuse my nation of, for this cause therefore have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, Neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee, but we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, what sect is he talking about? Christianity. He's talking to a group of Jewish people or leaders. Once he gets to Rome and he says, hey, this is why I was sent to Rome. Has anybody from Jerusalem contacted you why I'm here? And they go, we haven't heard a peep out of anybody. But while you're here, what do you got to tell us? And Paul just goes to work. Okay? Paul got an open door to preach the gospel to these Jews at Rome. And when they had appointed him a day, verse 23, there came many to him in his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. I would say he probably had a lot of people coming from morning to evening. And some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. That's the same thing going on today. You can give the gospel out and some people's going to believe it and some people are not going to believe it. Same thing. There's just two camps. Verse 25. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. We need to pay close attention to that because if you're like me, you're a Gentile in this room. It was the fact that the Jewish people rejected the gospel, the leaders rejected the gospel, that God sent the gospel to the Gentiles, and specifically with the Apostle Paul. And I'm thankful for that because of that, the Gentiles have been grafted in, the Bible says. Verse 29. Oh, wait a minute. Let me back up. He has sent into the Gentiles and they will hear it. He's telling the Jewish leaders about what happened to Jesus and they wouldn't listen to him. But he says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles and they will hear it. Verse 29. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and they had great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came into him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no man forbidding him. So he gets to Rome 
And he gets an opportunity to go to the Jewish leaders and explain what Christ had done. And basically, they reject him. And he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's basically what Paul had been on all of his mission trips. He would always go into the synagogues and always take the Old Testament and prove to them that Jesus was their Messiah. And he died, was buried, and he rose again. And half of them would believe and half of them wanted to throw him out. He was the biggest church splitter there ever was. Yeah, you heard that from me. Paul was a church splitter. Okay? But uh, when he got there... He was preaching and teaching the gospel. Okay, so hang with me. Turn over to the second page of your handout. And I'm going to have to speed up so we can get to our our, uh, video tonight. So, uh, Roman letter number five. How did the gospel get to Wales and England? So let me uh, show you. It is, and you have a blank there, right? Miles between Rome and England. So, John, you got to get your mind back out and get your... Get your fingers out. How far is it now from Rome to England? Anybody have a guess? Just throw it out. What do you think? Anybody else? No, it was 1,250 miles from Jerusalem to Rome, but you're close. A thousand miles. I thought the same thing, Sharon. I thought it would be way up there. So it's closer from Rome to England than it is from Jerusalem to Rome. Interesting. Okay? So history reveals to us that the gospel was introduced to the Welsh people in England before 100 A.D., If Paul goes to Rome in 60 A.D., how in the world did it get to England before 100 A.D.? You're asking good questions. Thank you for that. So, where is where? Does anybody know where Wales is? I should have brought a map with me. Wales is a section, the southwest section of the country of England. Okay, and the people there are called Welsh. The, the, the area is called Wales. The people are called Welsh, and they have a language which is Welsh. And so I thought, you know, it must be close to English, right? So I Googled it just about a month ago, and I'm Googling what, what does Welsh sound like? I couldn't understand a word they said. It was, it was almost German. It was, it was that far off, okay? So, we have two different people groups that make up the island of England. One of them is Wales. And yet, um, um, Princess Diana was from Wales. And someone else just lately I heard in the news in England are from Wales. And I thought, interesting. So the, the gospel gets to Wales in England before 100, or before 100 AD. It's a thousand mile tra- uh, travel, so how did that happen? So, I'm going to try to lay it out for you. A, in your handout, says, Paul has converts to Christ while in Rome. Now, do you all agree with that? When he was at Rome, people came to see him, and people got saved. So, I want you to turn over in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. And now, the Philippian church was a a church that Paul started, 
And he loves this church. Not that he doesn't love the other churches that he helped start. But this group of people were good to him. Well, after he got, you know, the story with the Philippian jailer and all that. But he loved this church. Okay. And so I want to read verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1 of Philippians chapter 1. And and he says, he's writing them this letter, and they're all upset that he's in Rome and he's in jail. Now, I, I would be upset if I got a phone call tonight that said, Pastor Brian and Randy are in jail, Cass County. I, I'd be a little upset about that, and I'd be worried. Now, how, how about if they went to Mexico and we got an email, hey, uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Randy are in jail in Mexico. I'd really be worried. So this church is worried about Paul. They are not happy that he's been carried all the way from, you know, from Jerusalem back to Rome and he's in chains. He's in jail. And so he writes them this letter with knowing that. And let me make sure I'm in the right spot. It's starting verse 12. It says, but I would, should, but I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel. He's writing them and he's saying, I know you guys know I'm in jail and I know you're upset about, you're worried about me, but let me tell you this. The fact that I have been brought to Rome and put in jail has been for the furtherance of the gospel. Okay? And then verse 13, he goes, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. So the key word here that I want to say is he's even in the palace and his teachings and his preachings are affecting the people in the palace that Caesar is running, even his household. Okay. And so history supports that people were converted under Paul's preaching in, in, uh, in Rome, but also they were converted in Caesar's household. While at Rome, among them one, and it's in your notes, one Claudia and a man by the name of Pudence, her husband, who were visiting Rome. Okay, So, Claudia was the daughter of a Welsh king by the name of Caracatus. And those two names are recorded in Paul's farewell uh Speech, basically, in 2 Timothy 4.21. So I know all of you are, are Baptists. You're not going to take my word for it. So turn over to 2 Timothy 4, and we'll see if we can find their names. 2 Timothy 4.21. And this is, this is basically the last book, if I'm not... Uh, if I'm correct, that Paul writes, and this is, he's given a farewell here at the end. Verse 20 says, 21, he says, Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubius greeteth thee, and Pudence, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. Now, I can't sit here and say 100% sure that this is the same group, but when you go back and study church history, you'll find historically even outside of the church, that there were two people that brought the gospel to the to the land of England in Wales, and the name of those two people were Claudia and Pudence. And so we believe that if you read that that uh, uh, Trail of Blood book, you'll see on the chart in the back of that book that by 100 A.D. 
the gospel has gotten to England and gotten to Wales. Okay. So, that's basically what I have. Not only that, we also can find from history, not just, not just, not biblical, but history, where we reveal that two men traveled from Rome in 160 AD that were Bible believers to continue to preach and to teach to the churches on the island of, of, of England, basically. And that was in 160 AD. So I have a video that we're going to run. And this is by a, a lady. Her name is Mary Jones. And she lives in the late 1800, late 1700s, I'm sorry, early 1800s, just so happens to be in the country of Wales, who tries to get a Bible and can't get one. So this is her story. So I'm sit down and we can watch this story. The 20th century was a whirlwind of discovery. And the 21st century is already shaping up as a time of far greater innovation and discovery. In fact, it has been so revolutionary that some Bible scholars see it as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. when I say that the beginning of the 21st century is seen by some scholars as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Let's stop for a moment and go back in time to the days of Daniel the prophet who lived more than 2,400 years ago. During his lifetime, God repeatedly gave him visions of the future of our planet. These visions spelled out the world's history from Daniel's day right down to the close of time. They are literally a detailed timeline between Daniel's time and the day that Jesus comes back for us. To date, not one detail in any of Daniel's prophecies has been wrong. And since most of what he predicted has already happened, millions of people have come to trust what Daniel says about our future. Daniel's prophecies have to do with the inventions of the 21st century. Quite a lot, some people think. There's an interesting verse near the end of the book that has arrested the attention of many Bible scholars in recent years. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 tells us, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, 
and knowledge shall increase. If you read the book of Daniel closely, you'll find all through it, and in the ninth chapter in particular, an intense desire on Daniel's part to understand the things he is seeing and hearing. Then at the end of the book, the angel tells Daniel to shut up the words and seal the book. I believe that the prophecy of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 is being fulfilled in this day and age. Bible knowledge and the study of Bible prophecy have metaphorically exploded. And while few people realize it, we might have a little girl who once lived in this house behind me to thank at least in part. Beginning in the early 1800s, the light of God's Word swept across the planet like a wildfire. One topic of particular interest to many Bible students was Bible prophecy. The time had come to understand what Daniel had written. But in order for people to understand Daniel and the rest of the Bible, they had to have a Bible in their hands, and very few people did. In fact, at the close of the Dark Ages, the Bible was only available in a total of 67 out of an estimated 7,000 world languages. In other words, the Bible was available to less than 1% of the language groups on earth. To make matters worse, even if the Bible was available in your language, chances were it was too expensive to buy one for yourself. But that was all about to change. And God used a faithful little girl born in this home in the Welsh countryside in 1784 to make the Bible available to the entire world. More than anything in the world, Mary Jones wanted to learn how to read. Why? So she could read the Bible for herself. Like most other people, she only had access to the Bible when she heard it read at church or prayer meeting. She wanted more. She wanted to read it herself. But there were no schools nearby to teach her how to read. Finally, when Mary was 10 years old, she was able to start attending school. But it was an hour's walking distance from her home. Life was very, very poor, um, especially so for the Jones family because uh, Mary's father died when she was four years old and she was raised by her widowed mother, uh, which meant that her mother had to go out to work in different farms. Materially, they were very, very poor, but spiritually, they were very, very rich. She quickly rose to the top of her class, but learning to read was only half of Mary's dream. She still didn't have a Bible of her own. A kind neighbor with a Bible in Welsh allowed her to come over every weekend 
spend time reading. She lived two miles from Mary's house. Mary visited every weekend and was amazed as she read the stories of Jesus. She'd heard some of them in church, but how much better for her to read it for herself. The Bible came alive for her, and her weekend visits soon were not enough. In fact, each hour spent in her neighbor's Bible only fueled the fire in little Mary's heart to own a Bible of her own in the Welsh language. So, even though they were prohibitively expensive, she began to save her pennies. Mary did odd jobs around the village for meagre amounts of money, a penny here and there. She began sewing for people, raising chickens, selling their eggs, gathering firewood, helping local mothers with their chores and watching over their children in order to save money for her Bible. For six long years, Mary saved her pennies. It wasn't easy. Some of Mary's Bible money had to go toward feeding the family. Owning a Bible seemed like an impossible dream. But after six years, she finally had enough money to purchase a Bible of her own. This is the monument inspired by Mary's patience and determination to buy her own Welsh Bible. But initially, Mary's quest only introduced a new problem. Where would she get a Bible in the Welsh language? No one in her village had one for sale. In fact, hardly anyone had one at all. Welsh Bibles were exceptionally scarce. Then Mary discovered that her new school teacher had one. She asked him where he got it. He told her of a minister by the name of Thomas Charles in the village of Bala, 25 miles away, who had Welsh Bibles for sale. One can only begin to imagine Mary's excitement. Even though she was only 15 years old, she set out on foot and walked all day over very rough terrain to get to the town of Bala. It was a trip that would be immortalized in history. And at least in part, I believe, it was also a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. When Mary arrived here in Bala late in the evening, she knocked on the door of the local minister who took her in for the night. In the morning, he took her to see Pastor Charles, who once lived right here in this very building. 
Thomas Charles welcomed Mary and listened patiently as she told her story. I love the Bible, she said. I've loved it ever since I was a little girl and heard it being read at a meeting I attended with my father and mother. Then the school opened when I was ten and I learned to read. Now I want a Bible of my own. Pastor Charles could hardly believe his ears. And you have come 25 miles on foot to buy one? He asked. Yes, she said. And I have the money to pay for it right here. How in the world did you get the money for a Bible? You said that your parents were weavers. And I don't suppose they're very rich. Oh, she said. I've worked and saved for six years, sir. I did mending for neighbors. I gathered firewood, raised ducks and chickens, just about everything you can think of. And now, finally, I have enough. The money jingled softly in the little purse, clutched tightly in her hands. Thomas Charles looked over at the other pastor and said, Mr. Edwards, isn't this sad? To see a young girl so brave, so intelligent, and so consistent a Christian coming all this long 25 miles for a Bible, and I have none to spare, not even one. There's no hope of getting one either, as the Religious Tract Society has refused to print more for Wales. Do you mean to say that we don't even have one for this poor girl? The pastor asked. Not even one, he said. There are two or three Bibles here that have already been promised to other people, but I have no more. The words fell like hammer blows on Mary's ears. She was devastated and she began to weep uncontrollably because she would be going home without a Bible after so many years of waiting. The chair shook under her sobs. Thomas Charles was suddenly moved with compassion. He got up out of his chair and laid his hand on Mary's head. Mary, he said, you will have a Bible no matter what. One of these Welsh Bibles was going to a man who can also read English. So I will let him have an English Bible and you can have the Welsh Bible that was intended for him. He went to the bookcase and got a Welsh Bible for Mary. So that day, an excited teenage girl walked 25 miles home to begin reading her very own Bible. After she left, Thomas Charles started to dream. Mary's story had so deeply touched him that he went to a meeting of the Religious Tract Society in 1802 and told them what had happened. When he was finished, 
he asked the members to consider forming a new society dedicated to printing and distributing Bibles in the Welsh language. During the discussion, Thomas Charles continued to plea for the establishment of a society to supply Bibles to Wales. In the midst of the excitement, a minister by the name of Joseph Hughes declared, Surely a society could be formed for this purpose. But if for Wales, why not for the kingdom? Why not for the world? That December day, the British and Foreign Bible Society was born. The society held its first meeting on March 7, 1804, and £700 was raised to begin the printing and distribution of Bibles all around the world. In God's version of history, it was a profound moment. The Great Awakening had its catalyst, and the way was open for millions of Christians to understand the wonderful prophecies of the Bible. The moment had come for knowledge to increase. A little girl with unshakable faith paved the way for the whole world to read what Daniel wrote. The Bible was all important to Mary Jones. She read over it four times during her lifetime. After that, she memorized the Bible. When she got to an old lady, she, she was blind, so she remembered those verses and she lived those verses. And when she died, that Bible was by her side on the table. So it was more important to her than anything else she had during her whole life. I'm at the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth. This is the home of the Mary Jones Bible. Now remember, when Mary made her famous walk to Bala in 1800 to purchase her Welsh Bible, the Bible itself was only available in 67 languages. By the year 1900, it was available in 524 languages, and the British and Foreign Bible Society had distributed almost 204 million copies. And what's even more amazing, between 1815 and today, a total of over 6 billion Bibles and scriptures have already been distributed. This is it. I can hardly believe that I'm actually holding the Mary Jones Bible, the one she once held and read. What a thrill this is. What an honor and privilege. Now, Mary could never have dreamed that she would play such an important role in God's plans for planet Earth. She was a simple country girl, used by God to put the Bible and the story of Jesus into the hands of millions of people. If God could use a humble country girl to start the fulfillment of a 2,500-year-old prophecy, I wonder what he might be waiting to do with you. The work of spreading the message of this book is not finished yet. 
there are still 4,400 dialects and language groups that are still waiting for a Bible of their own. back up. All right, so that's an incredible story because the fact that she wanted that Bible and, you know, put the thought into that minister that she purchased that Bible from that they need to get more Bibles out to to the Welsh people. But then another one of the pastor goes, well, if we do that, why don't we just start broadcasting them around the world? So the British and Foreign Bible Society was formed as a result and then about 30 years after that, the Trinitarian Bible Society, the one that Pastor Randy has been talking to that's helped us translate uh, the Bible or has translated the Bible into Chichewa and several other projects, was formed out of that Bible Society. And so it's interesting how just a little girl wanting a Bible in her language has kind of sparked you know, the production of Bibles around the world. That happened in the early 1800s, okay? And so um, what, what I haven't really got out tonight talking to you about is, you know, I kind of skipped over a lot of history from 100 A.D. all the way up until Mary Jones in, in the, in the uh, uh, late 1700s. But just like the churches in Europe... The church in England and Wales was persecuted and basically almost stamped out several times. And yet, but God's word is not going to go, you know, it's not going to be stamped out. God's going to preserve it. And so the gospel prevailed in the country of England and Wales. And the reason that I've kind of brought this up is because our heritage, most of our heritage goes through England and goes through Wales. And we'll talk about that the next time in two weeks when I come in and uh, uh, present the lesson to you. But we're going to talk about next time how the Bible got from Wales, how the gospel got from Wales and England to the United States, and how that has affected us as Baptist Bible-believing Christians. And so our heritage, basically, a lot of it goes back through England and so we owe a lot of we owe a, a large debt to those those Christians down through history, even in even in the country of England and in Wales, because we'll find out in the next week. And I'm going to stop because I'm, I'll be a little bit early, but I'm running out of things that that probably are pertinent to what I want to talk about tonight. Is one of the the second Bible that was printed in the United States was printed in what language, guys? Do you think? In well in, in Welsh. And I'm like. Why? So there must have been, we're going to find out next time that I'm here, that there was a lot of people from Wales that migrated to the United States. And there are churches in the United States today that can trace their heritage back to these people from Wales and England that brought the Bible and the gospel to the United States. And it's fascinating. That's fascinating. If you have, maybe that doesn't, you know, float your boat, but I'm like, how did we get the gospel here? Who was our father? I mean, I, I, I can't, in my, in my thinking, you know, my, I had a couple grandparents that were saved and, and, and followed the Lord. Some of them did it. And I'm like, well, what about the next ones back? How about the great grandparents? How about those behind them? 
And it's not till I get to heaven till I'm really going to find out who in my history, you know, may have been praying for me that I didn't even know about. Who do you guys have that maybe you're not even thinking about? Maybe, you know, a grandfather, a great grandparent that never met you but still prayed for you. I don't know. We'll never know till we get to heaven. So we owe a lot of, 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 uh, we owe a lot to the people that went before us and have got the gospel up until where we are. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then I pray that you guys have a good rest of your night and rest of your week. And in two weeks, I'll be back, and we'll finish this little short study up, and we'll go from there. Um, if you have any questions, come up, and I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards. But let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we